Welcome to another Dispatch from Afghanistan with Holly McKay. This time, we are going to be answering questions about Afghanistan that were asked of Holly on her Instagram page. These questions were asked as part of a post for a giveaway of her book, Only Cry for the Living, Memos from Inside the ISIS Battlefield. This episode will answer questions picked from a list of 46 that were asked. Holly will answer them in her own words. Future episodes will answer more questions. And uh, good evening, Holly. Good evening. Thank you for having me again. Oh, beautiful. Okay. All right. So this first question is from X58, X Shooter 58. And the question is, with the current younger generation of Afghans growing up outside of the Taliban influence, how much chance is there for the emergence of a real uprising at some point? Is ISIS causing havoc? Is the situation seems right for revolt, uh, given uh, that uh, can can they arm themselves? Uh, I think, well, first of all, in Afghanistan, what I'm seeing so far is people with personal guns can keep their personal guns. What the Taliban initially did was it went around to businesses and, and places and, and were looking at people's weapons. And if they were government or military issued, they were taking them as well as any vehicles that were issued by the government. Um, but they were handing back people's personal weapons to them. Um, so people, you know, very limited sort of supply, nothing kind of fancy. A few people may have an AK-47. Hunting is still a thing in Afghanistan, so people have hunting rifles. Um, but it's sort of, you know, it's allowed, but it's not necessarily this uh, sort of a big gun culture. But uh, but so far they haven't taken people's personal weapons away from them. Um, in terms of a revolt, now I think what Afghanistan is seeing is a really dire economic situation. And I always think when you get to a point where people can't put bread on the table, when people have not received their government salaries in many, many months, um, you know, we see, in, you know, as history tells us, with the, you know, right back to the French Revolution, and even before that, when people can't feed their families, that is when you see a revolt. Um, it's obviously going to be quite difficult because the Taliban does have great American-made weapons. So it's not something that I see anytime soon, um, but it's certainly something that you would never rule out, especially in a country like Afghanistan. I think in my assessment, sort of the biggest chance of any conflict is really stemming from the Taliban itself splintering. Uh, there's obviously a lot of different power struggles. These are people that have spent the majority of the last 20 years living in the mountains and fighting. So to run a country and to, to govern is something that is a complete uh, anomaly. And there's certainly a big, uh, big struggle for power. And so I think the biggest chances of a civil war would come as it did in the 90s is, is that sort of revolt for power from within. Um, ISIS, yes, it does wreak havoc um, in certain areas. It's not sort of a constant thing. It's not a daily bombing. It's um, you know, that there was a, a, a bombing in Kunduz a few days ago, which killed 100 people, and uh, that seems to be ISIS. Um, they're in Jalalabad and other places where they are uh, sort of wrecking the occasional havoc. They don't really control territory, um, but they are certainly, you know, a force to be reckoned with. The Taliban often would like to tell you that they don't exist or that they're extremely small and they aren't a problem because of course the Taliban wants to put out the message of stability and security. But I certainly think the dash uh, is something that could uh, be quite a headache for them right now. It's not sort of a huge insurgency the way the Taliban was uh, for the previous government, but it certainly um, can, wreck, can wreck quite a bit of havoc and, and take a lot of lives in the process. Okay, well, um, 
good assessment. Okay, next question is from Smith Family VA, which is, uh, uh, and the question is, are women and girls allowed to work and go to school under the Taliban or has uh, that totally been taken away in a matter of weeks? So right now, as it stands, is that girls um, of all ages that go to private schools, and there are a lot of private schools in Afghanistan, are still going to school as normal. Uh, but the public system, uh, girls have been halted from, from going to school, and that's sort of going on about three weeks now. So it's quite problematic. Uh, when I talk to education ministers and, and other officials about this, they always say you know, they're not against girls going to school. Their issue is they want to make sure that that girls have completely separate transportation so that they're not walking to school, they're not interacting with boys. And this is from um, this is from sort of high school and above. So secondary uh, or primary school students are still going. It's the secondary and then some universities that are, are problematic. Um, so basically what they're saying is they want to have complete separate transportation and obviously complete a separate infrastructure uh, for girls and boys. And some provinces have already got that set up. Um, and then other places that have been used to the more co-educational system over the last uh, several years, they still have to get that in place. So it seems sort of like a, a pathetic excuse and I don't know how long it will go on, but officials do say, you know, they have nothing against girls going to school. It's just that they want it to be in complete adherence to Islamic law, their interpretation of it, and therefore that requires a complete separation. So. That is what they're using and they're sort of saying well we don't have the finances and the resources um, to provide the buses or whatever it is that they that they want to do right now because and then of course they're pegging that to the fact that 9.5 billion dollars that the us froze when the taliban took control so they're basically saying well we need to we need that money so that we can get the resources in place whereas the international community is sort of saying well you need to get those resources in place before we unfreeze that money so it's a a little bit of a tit for tat there. Ah, okay. Well, uh, we've seen those kinds of tit for tats before, and um, hopefully that'll get resolved because it's always the ordinary people that the, that suffer. Okay, next question. Uh, it's from somebody that uh, appears to have a little bit of knowledge about the the, uh, the geography of Afghanistan. It's from Travis Irvin One, and the question is. What are the biggest differences you are seeing in places like Kabul compared to places like Mirage and Sanjin? Or, or are you seeing any differences? Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's always been the case that women that live in rural areas, I mean, to be quite frank, their lives are really not going to change too much. Um, these are women that generally, you know, never went out of the house without a burger, that they didn't you know, work in regular jobs unless it was on the farm or on the properties doing more laborious work, but they, they didn't really sort of have the jobs and the education that women in Kabul have. And I think so often we, we sort of just view Afghanistan from the lens of women in Kabul. And it's really important to acknowledge that, that women in rural areas, um, yeah, I don't, you know, they, they're very conservative. They stay home, look after the family. The husband may go out to work and their sort of job is, to, to sort of provide in, in a very different sense. And, and yeah, I think for them, you know, in certain places, um, perhaps like Sangin, you know, their lives may even improve because they don't have to worry about the, the extra sort of risk of violence that's happening there. Um, so, yeah, I just think 
obviously lives for women, you know, women are going to school and working in Kabul are going to or have already changed drastically, but that really isn't necessarily the case in a lot of the rural areas. Um, so it's, it's sort of interesting in a place like Sangin, which was really interesting to me was, um, you know, it's obviously sort of the capital where poppies are grown to export uh, as heroin and other drugs. And you sort of, I, you just didn't see any sort of development there. And you would talk to people and, and uh, you know, I'm sure the US and, and much of the international community tried to do programs there and it was probably, you know, far too dangerous or the Taliban destroyed it. Um, but, but people there really didn't see any benefit in a, uh, a US occupation. They, they, you know, the roads are all destroyed. Uh, they don't really have any extra infrastructure or schools or mosques. And, and to them, it would just, all, it, all the past 20 years brought was just, bloodshed and they saw no kind of direct benefits in their lives um, from that so yeah that's sort of a, a blunt assessment of that situation so it sounds like actually with peace coming life is actually getting better all around for for people in those regions and um, changing drastically for the people in the these cities wow okay so uh next question um from uh uh Caver Plank, it looks like, is the, uh, the the moniker on Instagram. And the question is, what is one of the biggest misconceptions about Afghanistan, in your opinion, or from the perspective of the Afghan people? You know, I think there's sort of this, uh, I guess, expectation of Afghanistan as being you know, a lot of hardened, hardened fighters and, and uh, militias in the mountain and a lot of war and, and bloodshed and which you know that all definitely exists but really for the most part afghans are incredibly gentle people and the men especially very gentle and they're um you know that they walk down the street you know holding hands they're very uh you know masculine but also very affectionate toward each other and just just incredibly gentle uh, human beings and, and you'll always see even it's bizarre. You'll even see the Taliban and they're always posing with roses or something ridiculous that to us may seem ridiculous, but to them, it's, uh, you know, it's very poetic. Um, so there are a lot of poetic souls and, and people that love nature and, and you know, pretty much any Afghan you talk to loves nature and every Friday, which is the only weekend day, you just see people filling the parks and, and going to, especially during the summer and flying kites and, and just being outside. And so I think, you know, overall, I always found, Afghans to be quite softly spoken and just uh, a really, you know, charming, lovely, hospitable, um, just just really gentle souls. And I think that's sometimes lost in the war narrative. Uh, there you go. Uh, it's a, it, it actually paints a, um, a, a quite a nice picture of a place to go visit and experience with. Okay, next question. It's uh, from uh, USMC vet C. Shell. And uh, the, the question starts off by saying, you know, you're doing amazing work. Uh, I applaud your bravery. And uh, the actual question is, how is the economy faring there? And how are the food rations? Uh, well, the economy is obviously not faring very well at all. A lot of people are out of work. Um, inflation's gone through the roof. Anyone sort of from the government didn't receive any salaries, uh, not only under Taliban, but also often for the month or two months in the previous government, they weren't paid either. So people are really going for months without food, lines around the bank. Cash is really virtually non-existent right now. So 
um, you know, nobody can really, you know, afford to, to live the lives of, of even very mild uh, enjoyment. So that, that's difficult, I think, for a lot of Afghans and they don't know when or how it will stop. Um, and that's sort of really wrecking havoc in terms of the economy and the cash shortage. And, um, you know, you see a lot of people just selling their belongings. People just, just get everything out of their homes and they go to these little informal markets set up really all over and uh, or they'll use a broker, a middleman to, to sort of set up a store for them and just selling everything they own, even when they're not leaving or going anywhere, just because there is no money coming in. It's just, there's no trade. There is just, you know, gets worse and worse by the day. So um, luckily Afghans are very resourceful people. They can make a lot out of nothing. Um, they, they can live on bread and, and other sort of basic staples for days, but it's certainly it's going to get to a point where it's really, um, you know, life is just, it's, it's hard to make any kind of end, ends meet. So um, that is, is a huge problem. And I really would say right now it's the number one problem for the country. And, and food rations, uh, well, that doesn't exist. So um, unlike a lot of, you know, perhaps more socialist driven countries, Afghanistan doesn't, it doesn't sort of, provide that um, you know food baskets or anything like that to families people are, are really just sort of on their own to to get uh, their own food and, and families often live together so you know you'll be at I was at um, a friend's house last night and they had you know 17 people live in their home because it's the four brothers and then all their wives and children so um, yeah people live together and they they just make it work and that's something very incredible about the Afghan culture oh and yeah, okay, uh, that's a great answer. Uh, and, you know, and I, I, I feel uh, even more for these people now because winter is coming and that, that just makes it even harder, uh, particularly on the food side. Okay, next question. It's from 97 Knowles. And uh, the question is, how do the women and mothers who have lost their husbands and their jobs under the Taliban survive and provide for their children? Do these women come together as a community to help each other? Do some of uh, do some men, uh, non-Taliban, try to help them? Does the Taliban do anything to help them? Uh, basically, what happens is in a lot of Afghanistan, it's a cultural custom that if a, a husband die or somebody's husband dies in war, that they actually have to marry the brother of the particular husband that dies. So sometimes women don't really have a choice and they then have to marry the brother of their dead husband. And, you know, I met a woman in Host province last week who revolted against that. Her husband died and she refused to marry the brother. And so then she was quite outcast and she didn't have much to fall back on. In her particular case, she then had to sort of rely on other women friends and she got a job as a teacher and she took care of kids on her own. And, and, so to be that independent woman, she never remarried. And that's, that's actually a rare thing. It's an incredible thing, but it's, it's quite rare. Um, oftentimes, you know, at least initially, women will be taken in by extended family members. But generally speaking, the expectation is for them to, to remarry within the family fairly quickly. Oh, interesting. I didn't know that. So that, that's uh, learn something new every day. Okay, last question uh, for uh, this interview session is from... Uh, Liz Schaefer, 22. And, and the question is, are you invited for tea hosted by many civilian families during your reporting? If so, is that experience like an Afghan home? I appreciate how often you talk about the normal people caught in between the fighting. And I wonder about their personal stories shared with you. 
I'm so thankful for your reporting. Stay strong and stay safe. Mm, yeah, absolutely. That's one thing about the Afghans is that they're always inviting you in. And you know, even you go to a meeting with the Taliban, um, and the Taliban wants you to stay for lunch. So it's just very, it's a much a it's a cultural sort of custom. It's a very hospitable, they view a foreigner as a guest in their country that they have to provide for. And you know, and that sometimes um you know, is, is really whatever they have, but tea is, is extremely customary. It's very, very rare to go to any sort of meeting or to anybody's home where tea doesn't come provided. It's it's sort of the mainstay and, and it's lovely going to people's homes. Generally, um, what happens in, in most homes is that the women and the men uh, are separate and you'll know, eat separately, we'll um, you know, entertain separately. We'll, so, you know, I may sort of be able to sort of go in and, and sort of meet the men. Um, and that's because I'm a bit of a third gender there. I'm, I'm not a, an Afghan woman, but I'm not a man. So it's just sort of arbitrary in between. So I'll usually go in to the home and just meet, um, you know, if they're willing to, to meet, you know, the father or the brothers or whoever is there. And then, um, you know, if there are a number of women in the home, uh, they're usually in a separate room. So I will go to the separate room and, and then spend a little bit of time uh, with the women as well. So, um, yeah, it's just, it's a very, uh, the very distinct gender, gender roles uh, within, uh, within the Afghan community. And, and yeah, they definitely don't, sort of mix a great deal um but you know it's an individual thing as well some women are a little bit more open to it than others but a lot just prefer uh to sort of be with their their uh, nieces or you know sisters or whoever it is that they're sort of living with so that's um that's sort of how tea plays out but it's uh yeah it's it's sort of a it's nice to go into people's homes because that's really one of the few chances that I do get to spend time with women um because you, you don't really see too many of them in the street. And of course, the majority of people that I'm interacting with on a daily basis, really 99% of them are, are men. And that's because, you know, especially under the Taliban where there aren't any women um, out sort of working or in the streets or anything like that, it's my, uh, my interactions are very much limited to, to being in the house. Oh, okay. Wow. Well, that's a, it's a quite, quite a different environment for, for you from uh, you know, what, what we people like you and me grew up with, but uh, a very interesting uh, view of you know how culture works in, in other parts of the world. Okay, well, those are the questions uh, for, for this uh, uh, session. And um, thank you very much, Holly. And uh, you know, we look forward to the next time you um, do a dispatch. Thank you very much. Absolutely. We'll do another one and we'll knock out the rest of those questions uh, in a few more days. Okay. Very good. You take care. Bye.